The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning, good morning. Let's uh, get into this. So yeah, as he mentioned, uh, you know, he read that and everything about the essential praying that's is benefiting others, and so that's basically what we're going to be talking about today. It is that time of the year. We make resolutions and all that stuff, but hopefully we can make a resolution to uh, read through the Bible, because that's what you get from this badgering from this pulpit every year around this time, and that's what I'm here to do today, is to just encourage you. And we're going to be looking at a biblical, historical-type storyline that will help us get to some application to that. Now, as most all of us probably know, much of the modern church these days relies heavily on creeds and traditions. In general, it's not always a bad thing, as these are historically established doctrines, and they tend to stem from much study and discussion. They come up with well-thought-out beliefs in the end by councils and things. When we look back and study church history, there have been pivotal times when issues and controversies have come up and councils were called so the doctrines could be examined and changes in their thinking were made where needed. There were, of course, many such councils, debates, and doctrinal statements in the early centuries of the church when doctrines were being fleshed out and codified. These are still held by many as a foundation from which to start to build upon. Then for the next thousand years or so, mainly under the Roman Catholic Church era, there were like another dozen or so councils called to deal with issues as they arose. Oftentimes, rising controversies were a reason to call a council to deal with it, and the outcome was, outcome was usually an established apologetic on the issue. Then there was, of course, the Reformation period, when some theologians within the Roman Catholic Church felt that the church had strayed from the path of the truth of scriptures, and so they raised their voice in an effort to challenge the church to get back on course in these areas. Now, this was a normal practice of doing things in those days to assist in reforming the church thought. This type of periodic challenge is rarely a bad thing and should not, it should be seen as a normal way to reevaluate the biblical positions. In general life, as well as church life and doctrine, we learn things, we apply things, And over time, situations come up that require our practices and our thoughts to be tweaked a little to conform to some new condition. A little further down the road, something else comes up, and things get tweaked a little bit more. Those altered teachings are then taught to others who they go out, and those things come up with an issue, and so they tweak things a little bit more. And then later, others give it a little tweak here and there too. Over time, all of these slightly tweaked doctrines can come together and get merged or tweaked a little bit more for the sake of unity. After a few decades of this going on, it's easy to see how the original doctrine within, with this biblical foundation can get blurred and become sometime, something quite different from when it started. It's not hard to understand how over the years this can lead to how a lot of church traditions become a solid, a solid doctrine. This is what had obviously happened after more than a thousand years of the church's activity in the early years. So when some of the teachers like Martin Luther came along and questioned the church's tradition, it caused quite a stir, though it really shouldn't have. 
It should have been a welcome way to reevaluate a position, changing it where and if needed. They raised questions because they simply wanted to right the ship and get back on course. And they were not seeking to break away or start a new denomination. Of course, if you know the history there, you know how things turned out in that situation. Instead of righting the ship, it led to a great division, which is why we have now the Roman Catholic Church and those who left who do not adhere to that line of thinking, and they have been labeled the Protestant Church because they, well, protested. So, But out of the whole situation, a rally cry of sorts was produced from within the Protestant Reformation system. Unfortunately, it is one that many seem to forget to apply even today, and that is the idea that the church is reformed and always reforming. Now, some have improperly interpreted this phrase, and they seek to misuse it to imply that truth is always changing and that newer is probably better. That is a misuse of the understanding of this phrase. A while back, I I found an overview of the modern view explained by a blogger named Jeff Landis who said, But as the years went on, I discovered that those who espoused the idea of always reforming were often reforming the wrong things. Their idea of reformation was to change the meaning of biblical texts and the theological understandings of the church. Too often it seemed to me their idea of reforming the church was to modernize the theology of the church to better conform to the current standards of culture and society. So reforming churches reformed their view of Scripture, which is no longer inerrant in this situation, and their view of the roles of men and women in the church. Then they changed their views of sexual sin and determined some sexual sins was to be tolerated because society concluded the person was made with a bent for such a sin. What was being reformed was the clear teaching of Scripture. So that's not the type of reforming that we're speaking of here. The directive is not to reform the scriptures to match us, but to reform our thinking to match scriptures. On the other hand, there is a typical modern way of thinking that the past and traditional thoughts are higher forms of accuracy usually. As one unnamed American vision writer stated, this simple principle is one that is most often forgotten in modern discussions about theology where a surefire way to end a disagreement is to pull out something written by Luther, Calvin, or even Spurgeon and show that they had said much of the same thing. Although the Reformers themselves were quite emphatic that they were not the final word, hence the always reforming, contemporary Christianity seems to be convinced that dead theologians should be the authoritative standard of interpretation. The point is, church tradition or ancient teachings do not always equate to the most accurate scriptural truth. Now, I'm in no way saying or suggesting that we throw everything out and start over. I'm quite often pulling out dead theologians to make my case. In many cases, those truths still hold true and actually more true in comparison to a lot of the modern day interpretations that we see. They're almost always helpful, but they simply portray where the teacher was in their working out of a theological position at the time that they wrote that. As David said, he has to change his own book because he's probably changed some views since he wrote that. So, you know, it's, it's just where you are, and that's what you wrote. So anyway, these things are not to be held as authoritative, nor to be considered perfect in their comprehension of a topic. 
On the opposite end of the topic, going with the total private interpretation of, of Scripture approach is likewise not a system of absolute truth. While many claim to be led by the Spirit and thus consider their understanding of Scripture to be accurate, this is rarely the case. As we tend to end up with a all we tend to end up with is a bunch of self-led professors of their truth causing more and more confusion and division. People tend to forget that Scripture does not come to us in a vacuum of sorts, just waiting for each individual to dig in and apply it as they wish. It is also not a book of good words or sayings that we must then arrange to interpret and fit into our situations. Many Christians teach this, treat, treat the Scriptures as a book of sayings, or with some kind of fortune cookie or sayings of Confucius mentality. They use verses pulled out of, out of the Scriptures and they apply it to their current situation as needed, squeezed in to fit their desired scenario. Rarely are the context, historical settings, or audience relevance ever taken into consideration in these cases. The average churchgoer not only tends to ignore such underlying ideas, but many church leaders are ignorant of those very ideas. Traditional favorite verses are still the go-to verses for many, even when grossly misapplied. Sadly, these practices are so often done by Christians and teachers that they then become traditions themselves, and the ship continues to go off course little by little. Those who do dig deeper and understand the story of Scripture do see the importance of understanding the cultural, the cultural and historical settings that surround these writings. And then they use that information to form a more proper understanding of Scripture and its application. Sadly, that practice is not much more, is not widespread in today's churches. Even more sad is the fact that when people do this and they approach this type of study, the things they start to say and they teach start ending up sounding a little alien to those around them. The biblical understandings end up sounding so opposed to their tradition, which they think is more accurate. Once someone begins to see the whole story in its proper context, as it unfolds and ties together, the Bible becomes a whole new amazing world of discovery to them, as we heard in the email was read earlier. But in order to begin to see that, one must read and reread in order to be familiar with this story. The key point I'm making here is that for most all of the issues that come up in times past, these synods and councils were all called together with the intent of addressing error, yes. But a byproduct of dealing with the issue or controversy was often to also deal with areas where tradition has led to a practice that may now be deemed as going against the clear teaching of Scripture. In the process of dealing with the arising error and seeking to get in line with Scripture, it inevitably led them to finding and addressing any possible traditions that may have built up, and then they addressed that a little further too. Things were not much different than the ancient times of the Hebrews. Looking through the Old Testament Scriptures, we find that for many centuries, the Hebrew Scriptures were revered, studied, memorized, and applied to every area of life by those seeking a better understanding of Yahweh. Many followers knew the scriptures inside and out. The Hebrew culture had a much stronger value on the memorized word over the written word. So they not only had the scriptures, but they also worked to memorize them. In most cases, this was a necessity since the mass production of copies of the scriptures was not widespread at the time. 
Maybe they didn't always adhere to them or apply them correctly, but they honored them and they studied them thoroughly. At various times, traditions would grow in importance and led people astray, and a reformation of thought and practice would come about to repair things for a time. Oftentimes, a reformation of thought was prompted by the raising up and condemnation of a prophet, or worse, an actual judgment from Yahweh in order to get their attention to bring about these repairs. While it happened time and time again, one thing was a constant. The revealed law and scriptures were the central point that they returned to. Yahweh was always telling his people to remember, 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 he would say. The truth was there. They just had to remember it and follow it. One of the ways he instructed them to remember it was instructing them to, of course, read or hear it often. So let us go back in early Hebrew history and take a glimpse at this. In Deuteronomy 17, we find the instructions that every future king of the nation was to follow. This was read earlier at the start. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it in all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes, and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. Notice that each king was to copy the law, to have a personal copy to read all the days of their life, that he may continue long in his kingdom. Then later in the same book, chapter 31, as the people are about to cross over into the promised land, we are told, Then Moses wrote this law and gave it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who carried the ark of the covenant of the God, of God of the Lord, and to all the elders of Israel. And Moses commanded them, At the end of every seven years, at the set time in the year of release, at the Feast of Booze, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose, you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. Assemble the people, men and women and little ones, and the sojourner within your towns, that they may hear and learn the fear of the Lord your God. And be careful to do all the words of this law, that there and that children and that their children who have not known it may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God, as long as you live in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. Well, as the story goes, we find that over time, these practices of writing and reading the law did not continue to occur as they should. And we find throughout the books of Kings and Chronicles that time and time again, the kings did evil in the sight of the Lord. In 2 Kings 17, we are told many of the things the nations of Israel and Judah did, revealing just how far they had strayed from what they should have been doing. We are told that they set up pillars in Asherim, the Canaanite goddess, served idols, despised God's statutes and covenant, went after false idols, followed the nations which the Lord commanded not to, Abandoned all the commandments of the Lord, made metal images of two calves, worshipped all the hosts of heaven and Baal, burned their sons and daughters as offerings, 
use divinations and omens. And in response to these things, we are told, therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. Judah also did not keep the commandments of the Lord their God, but walked in the customs that Israel had introduced. And the Lord rejected all the descendants of Israel and afflicted them and gave them into the hand of the plunderers until he had cast them out of his sight. When he had torn Israel from the house of David, they made Jeroboam the son of Nebat king. And Jeroboam drove Israel from following the Lord and made them commit great sin. And then if you track the history of the kings of Israel, it is pretty much one king after another who did evil in the sight of the Lord. Apparently, there was no longer the practice of the king's writing and reading the law, and thus also not presenting it to the people every seven years as they were commanded. The history of Judah is a little different and becomes a hit or miss of kings that do good and those who do evil. In the book, uh, books of Kings, we are often told how this one did evil on the side of the Lord and how this one did what was right. Some kings, we are told, not much about their spiritual state at all, just some of their activities in general. But let's jump to a time in Judah's history, to the time of Hezekiah. Prior to Hezekiah, we, are, we had quite a few kings that either did evil or we are not specifically told much about them at all. But in 2 Kings 18, we are told to Hez- we, we come to Hezekiah and we are told, in the third year of Hoshea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David his father had done. He removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah. And he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it. It is called the Neshutan. Nehushtan. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him but kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him. Wherever he went out, he prospered. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. So we discovered that he came into power and cleaned house of many of the atrocities against the Lord that were committed by his predecessors. And in return, he did many good things. We are told there was no one like him, either before him or after him in Judah. We know things were bad prior to him, so this is a high time of revival of sorts in Judah's history. We can assume, therefore, that the laws maybe were being read and honored during this lifetime. Many of the acts that can be read through of this can be read throughout 2 Kings 18, 19, and 20. Then at the end of 20, we find him passing away, and his son Manasseh begins to reign. Sadly, though, we are told Manasseh was 12 years when he began to reign, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hephzibah, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the, despic- the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. So after a great time of revival, the very next generation turned right around and went back to their evil. We are told Manasseh returned to doing the following. 
rebuilt the high places his father had destroyed, erected altars to Baal and made an Asherah, worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them, built altars within the house of the Lord, built altars to the host of heavens within the two courts of the Lord's house, burned his sons as an offering, used fortune-telling, omens, mediums, and necromancers. When it came to obeying the word of the Lord given to those before Manasseh and his people, 21.9 tells us, but they did not listen. And Manasseh led them astray to do more evil than the nations had done before the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel, of whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. We're told in 2 Chronicles of how God brought Manasseh under judgment, of how he seemingly repents, and the Lord restores him. And in return, Manasseh put some changes into place, taking away the idols and foreign gods, restoring the altars in the house of the Lord, and commanding Judah to return to serving the Lord. Then after 55 years of Manasseh, he died. And his son Ammon began to reign. And while we saw Manasseh turning things around, his son Ammon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. 21.21 tells us, He walked in all the ways in which his father walked and served the idols that his father served and worshipped them. He abandoned the Lord, the God of his fathers, and did not walk in the ways of the Lord. 2 Chronicles 33 also relates to his reign, and it states, And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, as Manasseh his father had done. Ammon sacrificed to all the images that Manasseh his father had made, and served them. And he did not humble himself before the Lord, as Manasseh his father had humbled himself. But this Ammon incurred guilt more and more. The things his father had started fixing in his later years, Ammon turned right around and restored to the original atrocities that his father had established early in his reign. And he actually pushed things even further. However, Ammon only reigned two years before his servants conspired against him and put him to death. Then Josiah, his eight-year-old, began to reign. Now note, while we are initially told that Josiah was right in the eyes of the Lord, we must pay attention to the fact that he was, it was not until a full eight years into his reign that he began changing things, at least in his own life. For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was yet a boy, he began to seek the God of David, his father. And in the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the ashram, and the carved and the metal images. So some conclude that most likely the first 12 years of his reign were not much different than probably his father Ammon's reign had been. Matthew Henry states, I fear, however, that in the beginning of his reign, things went much as they had done in his father's time, because being a child, he must have left the management of them to others, so that it was not till his 12th year, which goes far in the number of his years, that the Reformation began. Then eight years into his reign, at 16 years old, he began a personal spiritual reformation. And then another four years later, 12 years into his reign, now at the age of 20, what do we find him doing? He begins to chop down the altars of Baal, break into pieces the ashram as well as carved and metal images, burn the bones of the priests to cleanse Judah and Jerusalem, went into the surrounding cities and destroyed the altars there too. 
It appears all of these actions took place over the next six years, for we are told in 34.8, Now in the 18th year of his reign, when he had cleansed the land and the house, he sent Shapan, the lord of Azaliah, to repair the house of the Lord his God. Many years after working to cleanse the land, work has then begun to restore the house of God. And things were being done, and items were shifted around. Josiah instructs Hilkiah the high priest to take money from the house of the Lord in order to pay for the supplies for the repair. And then we are told in 34.14, while they were bringing out the money that had been brought into the house of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law of the Lord given through Moses. So, what can we assume up to this point? Obviously, the practice of copying and reading the law had not been in place from this time, even in Josiah's reign. And the laws of God have been all but forgotten and buried in the apparently unused house of the Lord, or abused house of the Lord when they put the altars and stuff in there. The house of the Lord, which for at least the 55 years of Manasseh reigning, and the two of his son Ammon, and possibly even the first 8 to 12 years of Josiah had been abused with idolatry. Obviously, the law had been buried, ignored, and long forgotten. And we are given no hint that the practice of reading the law was in, in practice during this prior 18 years of Josiah's reign either. Now they have begun doing some house cleaning, and they have discovered the book of the law. And having now read it, what did Josiah initially do? And when the king heard the words of the law, he tore his clothes. Then he immediately began to take action, as we are told in the next verse. And the king commanded Hilkiah, the, Aachem, the son of Shepan, Abdon, the son of Micah, Shepan, the secretary, and Isaiah, the king's servant, saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me and for those who, left, who are left in the house of Israel and in Judah concerning the words of the books that have been, the book has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is poured out on us because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord to do according to all that is written in this book. So while things were being, were, have been going pretty well with Josiah's reforms up to this point, he realizes that neither him nor his fathers have been keeping the full word of the Lord. And so he determines to make even further changes. And so we are told, then the king sent and gathered together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. And the kings went up to the house of the Lord with all the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests and the Levites, all the people, great, both great and small. And he read to their, in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood in his place and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies, and his statutes, with all his heart and with all his soul, to perform the words of the covenant that were written in this book. Then he made all who were present in Jerusalem and in Benjamin join in it. And the inhabitants of Jerusalem did according to the covenant of God, the God of their fathers. And Josiah took away all the abominations from the territories that belonged to the people of Israel, and made all who were present in Israel serve the Lord their God. All his days, they did not turn away from following the Lord, the God of their fathers. 
So now I'm going to leave that story and look at some ways to apply some of that to us. As I mentioned in the beginning, this is that time of the year when we are going to suggest you get a reading plan. We've got some on the website. Any software you get out there nowadays has plans you can use, so it's really easy. But th- we want to extend that, you know, uh, invite that uh, suggestion to you to do that as we do every year. As Christians, we can look at these stories and glean general attributes from them that we could seek to apply to our personal spiritual walk. So going back, we found in Leviticus 17 that the kings were commanded to copy the law and read it all the days of his life. We read that they were to read the law in order that the kings would learn to fear the Lord, not be lifted up above his brothers, not turn aside from the commandments, continue long in his kingdom, he and his children. So, are there any of these on this list that we feel may be despised by us today? Things that we shouldn't strive for? These were traits that the kings would be getting from from staying in God's law all the days of their lives. How much more could we gain by staying in the much larger amount of Scripture that we now have in our possession on the ways we should live? Now, some Christians have actually at one time or another read the entire Bible through at least once. A lot of Christians would pride themselves on that. Maybe it was not all in a short period. Maybe it was drawn out over many years. Some here, some there. But they say, yeah, I've read it all. I've I've read it all. And it's probably truer today, though, that most churchgoers have probably never read the Scriptures all through in their entire life in their entirety, you know, even once in life. They may know what much of it says. They may have studied large sections in depth. They may have portions of it memorized. They may know enough to be able to defend certain positions that they adhere to. But even with all of that, they may still be ignorant of how it all fits together at times. In some places, of course, a copy of Scripture may indeed be scarce, especially in some of the countries that we read about each week in the persecuted church segment. We've also often heard the stories of when somebody in these countries acquires even a small portion of Scripture, they cherish it, they cherish it. They just, it's just so precious to them. While places where they have them in abundance is often taken for granted. Here in America, you don't even have to go out to get a copy of the Bible. It's free online. There are so many apps, so many languages, so many versions, so many free commentaries, so many free study aids, teaching aids, everything you want is so much of it online. So really, is there much of an excuse for us today at all? Again, I'm going to quote another dead guy, same guy, same dead guy before, uh, Matthew Henry, I like the way he puts it. <laughs> and, you know, in his time, he didn't even have the abundance of availability that we have today, but he says, we may hence take occasion to bless God that we have plenty of Bibles and that they are, or may be, in all hands. That the book of the law and the gospel is not lost, is not scarce. That in this sense, the word of the Lord is not precious. Bibles are jewels, but thanks be to God, they are not rarities. The fountain of the waters of life is not to a spring shut up or a fountain sealed, but the streams of it, in all places, make glad the city of our God. What a great deal shall we have to answer for if the great things of God's law, being thus made common, should be accounted by us 
as strange things. He hits on a good point here. Bibles are so freely available in, in many places that it's really no longer precious to them. It's not rare. People do not have to copy them to make a personal copy. They don't usually have to risk their life to get a copy of it. And so we end up taking it for granted. Obviously, in Josiah's day, he did not have copies of the law laying around everywhere. And he wasn't just leaving it on the shelf and ignoring it like many of us do today. And what happens when they found it and they read it to him? He tore his clothes. He was so distraught over what they had been missing, realizing all of the laws he and his people were ignorant of, most likely even living contrary to. Once he became aware of the problem, though, he immediately began seeking how to rectify the situation. This should help motivate us to desire to read as often as possible. What if there are things within the Scriptures that we are ignorant and living contrary to? Would we respond in like manner if we read God's Word and found some area in our lifestyle to be at odds with what we ascertain as the proper Christian lifestyle? Again, wise words from Matthew Henry. When he heard the words of the law, he rent his clothes, and God was well pleased with his doing so. Were the things contained in the Scripture new to us, so that they, as they were here to Josiah, surely they would make deeper impressions upon us than commonly they do. But they are not the less weighty, and therefore should not be the less considered by us. For their being well known, Rend your heart, therefore, not the garments. For today's Christians, my first question is just how many today can seriously claim the Scriptures as well-known to them, as Matthew Henry says? What does that even look like in today's standards? Now, as mentioned, I'm sure there are many who have well-known verses in their head. But because it is so uncommon today for Christians to stay in the Word and read through it often and entirely, we find many people actually mishandle the Scripture simply because they do not really know it in its context. I would almost dare to say that the things contained in the Scriptures are pretty much new to many professing Christians. So many people have multiple copies and yet know so little of the actual full story that's contained in it. They know what they hear taught from the pulpits. And few, if any, of today's pulpits really go into much depth anyway. Over the years, people pick up favorite verses, phrases, terms, etc., and they use them, usually out of context, as if they are in in and of themselves some truth of Scripture being properly applied. Using the Scripture out of context to make points that are not what is actually being made by Scripture is a very common practice these days. All of these misapplications can be done away with if people would just read the entirety of Scripture in its context and more frequently. What people need to understand and do is to seek to learn the whole story of Scripture and not just a bunch of the pet verses that appeal to them. We would never be content with that, with what we should never be content with what we currently know or think we understand. We should never be content with a reading schedule that finds us only occasionally in God's Word. We should strive to be like the kings of old, where we read it all the days of our lives. Another one of the great councils in church history took place in the early 1600s, and the end result was the Westminster Confession of Faith, used to this day by most of the Reformed churches. 
This large statement of faith holds a scripture in the high and supreme place that it should be in a Christian's life. It states, The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for His own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture, unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelation of the Spirit or traditions of men. The question becomes, how can these good doctrines be deduced from Scripture by Christians if Christians are not frequently reading the Scripture? And while most everyone would speak out against openly adding to the Scripture, few flinch at the idea of imposing their traditions on their life, uh, which ends up with them going about, above, and beyond the scope of Scripture's teaching usually. In the end, tradition is king for most. They believe what they are taught because that is just always the way things have been done and believed, and they get no further beyond that. Then, when a doctrine comes up that may sound new or odd, they simply dismiss it as false. Rarely is this decision made because they have examined it, understood it, can seriously refute it from Scripture. No, it's just rejected because it goes against our traditions or our confessions or our interpretations of confessions sometimes. As we briefly touched on, traditions appear, they are solidified over time, and as time progresses, they tend to become law. And it becomes so binding that most people never question it. As those traditions grow and distort, often they can make the truth so hidden or obscured that the tradition is no longer really truth. Staying in the whole word frequently is a good exercise against this progression. If everyone in the congregation was in the Word frequently and stayed well-versed in it generally, these traditions of straying from the truth may be more easily avoided or addressed. Usually what happens is a few will raise question. Then it becomes a church split and a new church is formed and a new denomination is created. As cultural thoughts change, so do the thoughts and beliefs of many Christians New applications and ways to address the changing culture begin to come into play. These new applications become the new truth. These new beliefs become the new tradition. And that tends to move things further and further from the truth. As mentioned earlier, that's not the kind of reformation that the church is wanting to see. We should not seek to reform the scriptures to fit the world around us, but should be seeking to reform the world around us to conform to the truth of Scripture. But this is near impossible to do if we do not know it. Can you imagine what churches would be like if every single person who sat in the pews week after week was engaged in daily Bible reading? And in doing so, it takes them through it, you know, in its entirety, a plan that takes it to them every year. So they're very steeped in it. Can you imagine a world where every professing Christian truly knew their Bible more thoroughly because of this type of schedule? Can you imagine the number of crazy teachings and teachers that would not be tolerated? Can you imagine the impact Christians would have on the surrounding culture? Prior to the Reformation, the ruling church did not allow the common man to have the Scriptures in their hands. One of the benefits that came after the Reformation was that the Scriptures were put into the common tongue and given to the people. This offered a sort of accountability against the church becoming abused 
abusing their traditions and becoming unscriptural in their teachings. Since then, the church has grown greatly in many ways. But as always, given enough time, new traditions will come in. The church that was always reformed and always reforming has either become stagnant and filled with new traditions or has instead become the conformed and conforming church. The scripture is in their tongue. It is freely available to most, yet still there is a great lack of real scriptural knowledge. The people have them, but apparently it is not worth the time to invest to get to know them. Scripture reading is important, and every year you get a message from this pulpit encouraging you to get and set a yearly plan. And we always remind you that it only takes about 15 minutes a day to read through the whole Scripture in a year. It's not just a book that we should read once, get a feel for the general story, and then put it onto the side and use it as a reference book when some text is needed to satisfy us in some way. It's a lifelong instruction manual of sorts, filled with words and stories that can continue to change our lives the more we learn. I am sure many of you have heard people say things like, every time I read the scripture, I see something new that I haven't seen before. If you have committed to such a plan, I believe you will likewise come to this kind of conclusion. Let me tell you a little embarrassing story about this um, uh, friend of mine. His name is Henry. They call him Henry. His name is Henry. Henry was an avid reader and a studier of many deep theological issues over the previous decades of his life. He kind of prided himself on knowing a little bit about something, and he felt he had a pretty good grasp on the whole story of Scripture. He studied many theological issues, doctrinal controversies, church history, presuppositional apologetics, and all kinds of teachings with intelligent-sounding words to make him sound deep and important. He listened to hundreds of hours of sermons. He attended church regularly, and he did occasionally read the Scriptures. But in the past few years, every year that I, I mean, my friend Henry uh, stuck to reading through the scriptures regularly and consistently. He's picked up and connected points on things that he thought he knew, but it turns out he was quite clueless on how they applied. It is true that the more you read, the more you will discover those oh wow moments while reading, as things you may have thought you understood will continue to take on new life and make much more sense. As pieces of the story become more familiar, as the context is grasped even further, points within the overarching story start to become more clearly connected and understood in new ways. People may think rereading the same book over and over would be boring, but there are so many things that seem new the more you read it. Plus, I'm sure we all have friends probably that have read the same piece of literature, their favorite book, over and over, and they get more better understandings. They love it each time. And these are just, you know, simple fiction-type pieces that we read. How much more should the Bible be read by those who call it their Lord's revealed words? So if you have become one of the comfortable Christians who have the book on the shelf, but not in front of your eyes frequently who are content with getting what you get from the pulpit, I recommend you pull the book off the shelf, dust it off, and read it frequently. Maybe you feel you've heard so much of it preached over the years of church attendance that you are fine with you things where you are. My friend Henry felt that way too. But that is just a self-inflicted lie masquerading as a reason to be lazy and not do it. 
Having God's Word but ignoring it is like having it hidden and all but forgotten in one of the rooms of your spiritual house. If you feel your spiritual life might be a series of just going through the motions and surviving in a sort of autopilot dominated by your traditions of religion, it's time to make the commitment to read. Do not be content to live like the early years of King Josiah by simply following the herd and sticking with tradition and ignoring the personal growth you'll receive from Bible reading. He had the book. He didn't know what he had, and he was doing things that were pretty good in life. But when he found the book and he read it, he acted upon it, and things really changed. Now, for those of you old enough to have been around in the 1990s, there was this big resurgence of an earlier 1900s teaching, the, the WWJD. How many of you know what that is? What would Jeff do? Exactly. <laughs> what would Jesus do? It was everywhere. It was, uh, it was just, it was on wristbands. It was on everywhere. Bumper stick. It was everything. It was a big thing. Funny thing about it, if you track, track that back to when it really started, it was not a good thing because it was socialism. But anyway, Christian socialism. But anyway, now before you took some questionable action in your life, you would stop and say, what would Jesus do? This morning, I would ask you to say the same thing, WWJD. But in this case, what would Josiah do? Now, while asking yourself, what would Jesus do? It's probably helpful, definitely, in making decisions in your daily work. People say, you know, what if he was sitting right beside you? Same type of thing, you know, that, that mentality of always present. But really, that answer is only truly ever going to begin to be formulated if you are truly and deeply aware of him and his story in order to make such a proper decision. A better question to ask yourself might be, what would Josiah do? He has a book of God. You have a book of God. What would Josiah do? He would read it. Having and reading the book of God, what would Josiah do? He would tear his clothes after realizing just how far off the mark things had been. Having, reading, having and reading a book from God that makes you realize just how bad things have gotten in your life, what would Josiah do? He would begin applying those teachings to life to reform practices and theology in life. He would evaluate the traditions in life that were against the book of the law and would adjust them properly. Too many Christians sit around feeling sorry for themselves, saying, They do not feel as though God is there for them and that He seems absent in their lives. Some some simply think God is big. He's a big God. He's concerned with the big things in the world and that the little things in their life are not part of that consideration. Much of this mentality can be brushed away when you see His concern for the little things throughout His Word. The bottom line is, if you are a person who claims to love and worship God and His Son, who claims to be a part of his people, and who claims to want a better life in him, yet you do not stay consistently within his word, then you are a part of the problem, not only with what may be bothering you in your life, but with the effects of Christianity in the world today. Harsh words I know, but in this day and age, there is no real excuse for not staying in the word. And failure to do so makes you one of those people who is most likely walking around, living and speaking Scripture in a manner out of line 
with the Scripture and what it actually teaches. You become more of a liability for honoring the name of Christianity, and the message just continues to be obscured through you. The truth is there. We just have to read it so as to remember it and follow it. And once is not enough. Pull out the word. Read it as we are told in Joel 2.13. Read it, and as we are told, rend your heart and not your garments. And let the word bring revival to your soul each and every year. As you join the challenge to pick a daily reading plan and to read through these scriptures in an entire year. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. Pray that we would not take it for granted. Help us, help us in our crazy, busy lives to, to find the time that is so easily found to stay in your word. Help us to not have excuses. Help us to seek to honor you in all that we do. We just pray that you would bless us in all these things. Amen. Amen. And the question is, yes, there's a Bible plan on the church site. Yes, you can get it in any of the apps you want, and we're done. Anything else? <laughs> I heard phones beeping. That wasn't questions coming in from the... Questions, questions, questions? No? Anybody need help finding the website? There's a Bible plan on there. Yes. I just have a comment. Since oh, boy. Yeah, here we go. Uh, it's not Columbia, so. <laughs> anyway, I remember, I guess it was in the 60s. Uh, yeah, I'm a little bit old. Uh, prior Roman Catholic, before that, they did the, I guess, the Mass in Latin. So you didn't understand. Yeah, they still do that, yeah. Well, that was their practice. They don't really want the people to know, and they don't encourage you to read it or whatever. They do it all in foreign languages, so mm-hmm. still practicing that today. So, yep. Sadly. All right. Yes. Jeff, well, a uh, comment that this year has been a good year as far as scripture reading. Um, last year, I cheated. I used my Bible app to read to me. I've done that before too. It actually, if you're an audio learner, those Bible and they they don't sound robotic anymore. They actually sound good. So sound like people, yeah. I've, uh, I've I've it done did that. not have much impact. Yeah. Well, some people are audio mm-hmm. learners. Some people are visual learners. Mm-hmm. And so I'm I like I'm an I like I used to listen to my friend Henry listen to a lot of sermons online. But <laughs> I mean I love listening to audio stuff, but I like reading too. So I'm one of those that likes both. But this year I made was it? I made it to read it, and it was a whole different. Story, and I ran across. Uh, well, I, I've abandoned a couple of my favorite verses, and found another, a new verse passage that uh, has really changed my life. Uh, Psalms 19:14. Just may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. And that's kind of like what what would Jesus do? You know? mm-hmm. So I ask myself, mm-hmm. okay, is this what you're about to do or say? Or what you're thinking or meditating on is that acceptable? Mm-hmm. And I have to stop and rethink and rework, redo my mm-hmm. actions sometimes. So, but I've missed that verse for years. You know? mm-hmm. so. Somebody added that when you did the yeah. last one. So. Somebody that knew me added that. And they verse. put that in there. Mm-hmm. Well, I know that as myself, I you know I work in a um, traditional evangelical business, and so I run across. 
these type of issues all the time. Mm -hmm. I just bite my tongue <laughs> with people, mm -hmm. you know. They're like, oh, look. And they quote Jeremiah. I'm like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> I know the plans I have. I know the plans I have. <laughs> I actually asked somebody at work once when they showed. It was on one of our calendars. I'm like, what does that got to do with the name? And I told her my point. She's like, well, you have to fight against the whole church for that. She, I see what you're saying. But anyway, <laughs> I had to bite my tongue because, yeah, it's just it's commonplace. You just the people are just, just whatever. Well, that what you just said is true. Words couldn't be spoken. We have to fight against the whole church. Mm -hmm. Right. Because it, it's so slanted that when you talk about the truth of Scripture, they're so confused. Mm -hmm. It's so Sad. weird to them. that Yeah, they get that deer in the headlights. Like, she, she was true. like. I explained to her that verse, and then she's like, oh, I see what you mean, but that's just not how people use it. We like it. Like, why, you know, we should understand that and take that, but, you know, I'm just right. one wheel in, in the, one cog in the wheel. Mm -hmm. So. So you tell the car dealership where you're talking to these guys, and the guys that were sitting in there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's, as David has used in the past, it's, it's always good in your arguments, discussions with people when they're like, you know, arguing with you and you're like, well, have you read the whole Bible all the way through multiple times? Mm. Well, no. Well, the part I'm arguing is the part you haven't read. <laughs> so it's in that part you haven't read yet. So. Part you didn't read. Is that a hand or are you just stretching because I made you tired? It's a hand. This is a, this, this, I find it is true that in your life and one's life to uh, recognize the things that you fall short on and reading about is definitely one. But, uh, even if you're a novice, if you've been reading it for years, you know, just like it's a living word, it's, you read a verse and then they say you read it, it's oh, something different. But I think it's remarkable how he, it's the only book that's here on this planet, I believe, that is livable, that it is, that can change your life. That it is, it got a whole lot of stuff in it that, that does the body good and spirit good. So to grow up in that, went round no matter where you pick up to do so it's amazing to me this is it's worth it's worth it you know and it's like i said i have I'm, i've been i'm going to confess first up there's a many many years i ain't know nothing about the bible or picking mm -hmm. up anything but mm -hmm. praise god that, uh, he gave me the strength to uh the knowledge to do so and i pray for it i think a lot of people a lot of us have went through that where you know we look back at times of you know and the thing is with the scriptures, you're not, it's, you know, yeah, it's a book of truth and everything, but it's really interesting how it works because you only really get from it what you need at the time. It's well, like, right. that's what's tough when, when somebody asks me to explain a view that I hold to. I'm like, you know how many years it came for me to get to this view, for me to unload it on you? There's no way. I had to build a foundation and little steps to get me from, and for me to explain to, you know, it's not like when you pick up the Bible and you read it, it's like a fire hose of truth that's blasting, you can't comprehend it. You're, you're reading it, things are going right past you. But there are certain things that in your life, that's meaningful. Mm -hmm. Well, then the next year, you read that same verse, it probably has no meaning to you at all. Right, right. But the verse behind it, all of a sudden, building on that foundation, mm -hmm. totally means something there. So reading it frequently does not get boring because you're not really reading the same words. You're really in a different place in your life, mm -hmm. different right. thoughts, different needs. And the Lord is pulling out different pieces of those verses that if you don't read, didn't read it again, didn't mean anything to you last year, means something to this year, probably won't mean anything to you next year, but something else will. There's always something new. Again, it's not like you're just getting a fire hose of truth and you're trying to, you know, absorb it all. So.